Well, in, in about six weeks, it's going to be Christmas. And many of you will wake up on a snowy Christmas morning and you'll head to your Christmas tree. And there underneath the tree will be all the gifts you've ever wanted, right? And what happens every Christmas, I remember as a child, of course, when I was really little, we were in a church, we weren't allowed to celebrate Christmas. But when I was about 10 or 11, we had our first Christmas. And there's this excitement about your gifts, right? And it's just like, this is the best time of the year. And you rip open all of your gifts. But then as soon as they're, they're all open, there is that moment where it's like, are there any more? <laughs> I remember when our son, our oldest son, Josiah, was about a year and a half. So this was his, the first Christmas he was conscious of. And he was our first child and we were all excited to be able to give him some gifts. And so we gave him some gifts and he, he ripped them open. And then I remember him just standing there and saying, more. <laughs> you know, we, we as um, human beings often struggle with contentment. We receive and we're excited to receive, but it's like, is, is there any more that I could have? And I, I think that's true of all of us. As our incomes expand, as our material possessions expand, it's like, well, could I just have a little more, Lord? And today our message is going to help us to shake off that all too human tendency to believe, to think that if we just have a little more in this world, that we're gonna be content. Now we know in the word of God, God is a very practical God and he always provides for the needs of his people. And sometimes he does it through other Christians and sometimes he does it through direct acts. And this is the balance that we see in the word of God. I think this message is gonna be especially important to so many in our room that are struggling with employment insecurity because of the vaccine mandates in particular. And also because of supply chain issues and just the general question marks surrounding the Canadian economy. This is gonna encourage you. And as I've mentioned, it's the final in this series called Beloved Stand Firm. I, I took that sermon series title, by the way, from Philippians chapter four, verse one, where we are called God's loved ones, God's beloved, and we're called to stand firm. And, and even the title itself kind of captures in a certain sense, the essence of this final message in that it reminds us both of God's affection for us, that we are loved by God and God is a provisionary God. And it also calls us to do something in general terms to stand firm, but in this specific text, to contribute to and to bless one another. Now, I think this is especially important because in even in church culture or even in broader culture, we can fall into the trap of being like super spiritual Christians. So we talk about provision and contentment and our mindset is just let go and let God. Have you heard that? Just let go and let God, meaning we have no responsibility to one another. There's not really a need for us to do anything. We just get in our prayer closets and we pray and we just let go and let God. That's not biblical. God works beyond our capabilities, but God also works through our, our, our obedience to him. And then on the other side of the coin, we don't want to take credit ultimately for our ability to provide for and bless other people. 
We don't want to commit Bart Simpson's prayer, uh, sinful prayer. Do you remember when Bart Simpson, which for the most part is a disgusting show, prayed this prayer? Dear God, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. So we neither want to fall into the trap of like a let go and let God. Let's just, let's just let God provide for our people. Nor do we want to fall into the trap of thinking, well, we can figure it out. If, we're just, if we just make the right decisions, we can figure it all out. We can provide for ourselves. We can meet all our own needs. No, in church life, we have a responsibility to bless one another. And we also have a responsibility to trust God. Remember the two fish and five loaves? A little lad brought two fish and five loaves. That's the human contribution. And then God took the two fish and the five loaves and made them hundreds of fish and hundreds of loaves to the point there were baskets left over. So when we, when we talk about issues of provision, we bring our two fish and our five loaves and then God steps in and he creates basketfuls. It's a both and, not an either or. It's not a let go and let God. It's not a thank you, God, but we earned it for ourselves. It's a both and. And this is the message that we're gonna see time and time again in the scriptures. So let's look at three ways that the Christian church cooperates with God in ministry, especially in the realm of provision. The first lesson that we're gonna learn is we bring concern. This is like our two fish and five loaves. We bring concern and the Lord brings contentment. Those are his baskets. So we bring concern for one another. We have a responsibility when others are in need to show concern. And what God brings is contentment, which we can't bring to one another, but God can bring it. So we show concern. That's our two loaves or our five loaves and, and two fish. And God brings contentment. So we're going to enter into the text at Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. This is Paul writing. Again, you got to remember, he's in jail. He's in some nasty circumstances. But he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, not a little bit, but greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, Listen to this. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is fascinating, right out of the gates. He's commending them for providing for him. And at the same time, he's testifying to the fact that even if they don't provide for him, he's content because he has God. This is the balance. He goes on to write, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Listen to the contrast here. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then this famous statement, which all of you I'm sure have heard, probably out of context. I, do, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So verse 10, Paul expresses his thankfulness to other Christians for the concern they demonstrated toward him. We should do that too. We should not only be providing for and encouraging one another, but we should be quick to thank one another. 
when others meet our needs, when others bless us and encourage us materially is the primary focus here, but spiritually, emotionally, whatever it might be, through the gift of one's presence. Paul's thankful. Now, when he says here, you had no opportunity, what he's referring to is that you had no opportunity to hear his thankfulness up until now. So this is not some sort of a backhanded rebuke that they hadn't provided for him enough or earlier, but what he's talking about here is that it had taken him a while to pass on his recognition to them that they had been so such a blessing to him. And of course, we can give him a little bit of a break because he didn't have email. It took a while to get messages around. So that's what's going on there. There's, there's nothing in the text that indicates that he was disappointed in them. It just took him a while to get the message back. But the question is, is this passage then teaching us that whenever we have, whenever we have a substantive need that God immediately provides? Is that what it's teaching us? Does it mean that as soon as I pray, Lord, I need this, the next moment God gives it? Is that true? Is, is that the, the proverbial health, wealth, and prosperity gospel actually biblical? The gospel that says, if you name it, you can claim it. If you blab it, you can grab it. If you want it, you'll get it. Is that true? No. Because Paul is very clear here. Look at the contrast. On one hand, there were times when he was low, he was hungry, and he was in need. And it wasn't because of a lack of faith or sin in his life. It's because earth is earth and it's not heaven yet. And sometimes we experience some difficult circumstances. You can be faithful and be in a very lowly place. You can be faithful and be hungry for a period of time. You can be faithful and be in deep need. But then on the other hand, Paul also experienced times of abundance, times of plenty. He talks about that in verse 12. And here's the challenge for us Christians. We don't just trust God in the latter. We don't just trust God when the food's on the table, the money's in the bank, the jobs are secure, and people are patting us on the back. We also trust the Lord when we're in times of hunger and need and lowly circumstances. And how do we do that? Because we know at the end of the day, God is still on his throne. The king is still the king. And all things, Romans 8, all things work together for the good of those that are called according to his purposes, right? So we know that even in the nasty times of life, God is sanctifying his church if we remain faithful to the mission that he has called us to. So don't give up when times are tough. Stick it out. Persevere. Don't compromise. Don't give in. You don't need to question God. Allow him to teach you whatever he needs to teach you. Now, sometimes God does need to teach us some hard lessons. So we might be in a time of need, let's say financial need, but as we assess our lives, realistically, we haven't been really committed to generosity. We haven't managed our money well. Maybe we got into too much debt and it's a little bit self-induced. So maybe there's a lesson to be learned there, not to be presumptuous with the lessons that 
with the finances that God has given to us. But at the same time, you can be the greatest financial planner and saver and giver on planet earth and still lose your job for Christ. So maybe there's a different lesson that he wants to to teach you there. But here's the point, folks. Commit this to memory. Contentment is not contingent upon immediate results. Contentment is not dependent or contingent upon immediate results or immediate provision. Paul says that he had learned. It takes a while to learn something. You don't learn it in two seconds. He had learned. He had learned contentment regardless of his circumstances because his sufficiency was in Christ, even though he understood what it meant to go without. And now we have this famous verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, we kind of live in this culture where there's a lot of um, emphasis on positive thinking, the power of positive thinking. And there's life coaches and there's, there's lots of little quotes you can post. And you see people do, doing this all the time, even Christians, and it's reflective of a lack of a Christian worldview. But it's like they're, 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 they're on the racetrack and they're ready to run some race. And like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, really? So this verse means that you're going to win because you have Jesus, right? What if the greatest sinner in the block ends up winning the race and you come in last, right? So people have this idea, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I'm going to get an A on my test because I can do all things. It's a promise. I'm going to win, you'll win the competition. I got my eyes on this girl. I think she's going to say yes, because I can do all things, you know, through Christ who strengthens me. I can accomplish all my goals. But the reality is this, this verse is not about some promise to God that whenever you set a goal, you're going to meet it. It's not what it's about. In the context here, what it means is that I can continue to do ministry. I can continue to be faithful. What are the all things here? It's the things God has called us to do. I can continue to be faithful. I can continue to do ministry even when I have nothing. And in the horizontal might actually lose because I have Christ. And his presence strengthens me. His presence strengthens me through the hard times and the difficult times, as well as the good times of life. So by way of application, we need to look for opportunities to bring our two fish and five loaves to others in the form of blessings, in the form of encouragement. But at the same time, we're not going to doubt God when we lose our job, health, or freedom because the Lord is going to provide something that we otherwise might not even be seeking. Have you ever sought after something and God doesn't provide and then he provides in a different way and you're like, Okay, I'm so thankful he didn't provide what I asked for, right? Have you had experiences like that? Oh, I'd really like that job. I'd really like to marry that person. I'd really like that ministry opportunity and God doesn't provide. And you're like, Lord, you let me down. And then time goes by and he works in your life and some other opportunity opens up and you're like, wow. Thank you that you didn't answer my foolish prayer. 
Thank you that you didn't answer my foolish prayer. So that's lesson number one. And then lesson number two is sort of continuing the theme. We give and the Lord provides. Well, how's that? So we, we bring our two fish and five loaves, our material stuff to provide for and bless others. In this case, they were giving Paul money so that he could travel around and plant churches and do the work of the ministry. But at the same time, they didn't get the pat on the back because Paul also acknowledges that even though you gave, God ultimately provided. It's a both and. Verse 14 says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, speaking of their financial gifts. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, in other words, early on in my ministry, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So at the beginning, they were his only supporters. So, you know, his, his support was a little thin, you could say. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. But then listen to what he says in verse 17. So he's thanking them, verse 15, 16. He's thanking them for being unique, for being uniquely generous as a church. But then in verse 17, not that I seek the gift... In other words, I'm not really all that interested in the money you send. That's not what this is about. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, thank you for giving, but I don't really care that much about the money. I just know what the money accomplishes, and that's ministry. So Paul has this very much of a vertical mindset. He wasn't some shyster trying to bilk money out of people just to line his pockets. He understood that ministry... When we give in ministry, it's ultimately for spiritual fruit. And then he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then we have this doxological kind of, statement of praise. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul just kind of jumps right into worship and he thanks God for his provision. Verses 14 and 15, he thanks them for their provision. He acknowledges that sometimes even in ministry, the money that's required can be a little thin. You know, it can be a little thin at times and other times there's, there's great abundance. By the way, a little sidebar, the world loves <laughs> to trash talk the church whenever we bring up the issue of generous giving. Have you noticed that? It's like, it's their number one attack. It's like last year when I was getting fined and charged and dragged through a knothole backwards in the media, you'd have these morons on social media, oh, he's in it for the money. It's not a very good financial strategy to go to jail and get fined. But it's just like, it's their go-to insult. Oh, the church is about money. It's all about bilking money out of people. Really? <laughs> Folks, you can make a lot more money outside of ministry. But you know, really what it is, I believe, is it's an, it's an attack from the devil. They don't criticize overpaid athletes, wasteful celebrities, 
or government waste. Don't talk about that. They don't criticize those things, but they want, they want to shame the church for any time we talk about generosity. I mean, God forbid, God forbid after all, if we ever talk about generosity, because you know what? What the devil loves, he loves stingy Christians. He loves Christians that are nervous to ever talk about finances. He loves underfunded pregnancy centers and churches and mission organizations and seminaries where they're they're barely able to make it. He loves that because he knows we live in a physical world and funding affects ministry. He loves that stuff. But in our church, you know what we say? We believe in unapologetic preaching. If the Bible talks about it, we talk about it. We don't apologize to the world for what God has said. So too bad world. If it comes up in the text, we're going to address it. And here it's addressed, but it's addressed from a robustly biblical perspective. And what what is super encouraging, and I would say refreshing maybe is a better word, about the biblical view of money is we talk about money, but then we're reminded it's actually not about money. It's It's not about money. It's about spiritual fruit. He writes, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. None of us should ever be seeking money just for the sake of money. Not in our families, not in our businesses, not in our churches, not in any sphere of life. The goal is not money, folks. The goal is not a paycheck. The goal is not a hefty bank account. If that's your goal, if you're a business owner and your goal is to make money, you'll eventually compromise your values. You have to be kingdom-minded in your business. If you go to work because your ultimate goal is just to get a hefty paycheck and retire young, you will ultimately compromise your values. You will not be a robust citizen of the kingdom of God. If our church is just taking up offerings because, well, we want more money, we'll go off course, we'll compromise. In fact, the opposite is true of the accusations that were levied against us and that many churches didn't stay open and didn't take a stand because they were afraid of losing money. They were afraid of what the government would do to them because we got to keep the funds coming in. So what's money for? Money is for the kingdom of God. It's for fruit. If you're a Christian business owner and you actually think of your business Christianly, you will understand that you you want to make money so that you can advance the causes of Christ's kingdom in all spheres of life. If you ask for money as a church or ministry, it's so that you can advance the purposes of Christ, called here fruit, spiritual fruit, through your ministry efforts. That's what it's about. So our focus is never on on making money, but it's on the eternal spiritual results. And Paul has this great attitude. He's, He's like, hey, thanks for giving but it doesn't dominate my thinking. My focus is on spiritual fruit. So yeah, we got to think about money and we got to encourage one another to be generous, but that's not the goal. The goal is spiritual fruit. So he has this great attitude here. Now, worldly churches and worldly Christians, on the other hand, are stingy or they, they, they're, they're disgusting in that they reward People forgiving. We never do that in our church. You'll never see a gold plaque 
oh, so-and-so gave an exorbitant sum, so we're going to put a plaque on the piano to eternally honor him. No, we're going to honor the widow with two mites, and we're going to honor the millionaire. Not, not publicly, but we're going to give honor privately and encourage people, and ultimately, we're going to rely upon the Lord to provide for people who have provided for the causes of Christ. We don't beg for money. In our church, we never beg for money. Never. We will never stoop that low. What we do is we make you aware of the opportunities because we want you to give cheerfully. I'm not going to beg you for money. We provide you with opportunities to give cheerfully because we're mission-focused. We're not money-focused. Paul was mission-focused, not money-focused. Therefore, we should be mission-focused, not money-focused. And if we see a need and we have the means, why wouldn't we want to bless one another? This should be our mindset. Why would we not want to? Why why do we need to be asked? Why do we need to be coerced? Why do we need to be begged? (laughs) That's not a Christian mindset. If someone has to beg you to give, you're aware that you don't have a Christian mindset yet. You should want to. Now, the reason for this is because we know that we own nothing. We're just stewards. We're just stewards. We remind ourselves of this all the time. We don't own anything. You ever hear someone say, I got a net worth of? No, you have a net worth of zero. Your net worth is God's net worth. And God stewards to some people a Dixie cup full of wealth and other people a bushel basket full of wealth. But it's all his. He's the owner. You're the steward. Ownership is the enemy of stewardship. You'll never be a good steward if you think you own it. And God will steward you your gifts, and then you are to use it for his honor and glory. And if you use it poorly, he might actually take it back. Or he may let you keep it, but ultimately you'll never be content. So in verse 18, it's kind of a great reminder that if more folks understood this, then more ministries would be well-funded. Now, I know you understand this because our church happens to be well-funded. And if you've been coming here for at least a year, you could count on probably two fingers the numbers of times that I've even mentioned money in a sermon because I only mention it when it comes up in the text. And yet in spite of that fact, we haven't begged you for it. You get it because you've supported ministry well. And I know that many of you have supported one another well behind the scenes as well. I hear the stories once in a while. It's super encouraging. Uh, Now, just in case this isn't super clear, Paul uses the language of fragrant offerings to refer to to the gifts that this church had given. Now, what does that bring to mind? When you think of fragrant offerings, what does that, by the way, I'm appreciating this word fragrance more and more. Anyway, if you go back to Leviticus, a fragrant offering, some of the offerings that were brought were like incenses and whatnot. And when you burn them, they smelled pretty good. And you can read about those in, in Leviticus 1. Several times are mentioned in Leviticus 2. So a, a fragrant offering was an act of worship, right? It's an act of worship. So Paul takes that language from Leviticus and he applies it to giving. So what's the lesson there he's trying to communicate? Giving is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. The legalist says, what percentage should I give? 
Well, how much do you want to worship? When should I give and to whom should I give to? Well, how many worship opportunities do you want? (laughs) Giving is an act of worship. So we give regularly and we give thoughtfully and we give generously because we worship regularly and we worship thoughtfully and we worship generously. It's an act of worship. Super helpful. Don't get too into the weeds with the percentages because you become a legalist really quick. Think about your worship life. To what degree do you want to worship? If you're a worshiper, you'll be generous. Money in, money out. And, you know, God, God provides. You know the old statement that God calls us to shovel out the money and he shovels it back. And guess who has the bigger shovel? Right? So God will give you, if you're a, a generous steward, he will give you more oftentimes to give away. So great reminder in verses 19 and 20 that God ultimately supplies. The glory goes to Christ. He is our advocate. He is our source of glory. And he gets the credit. So all this stuff, thanks for giving. It's really about fruit. But at the end of the day, I'm not even giving you the ultimate credit. God's going to get the credit and God's going to be glorified through this. And that's an awesome thing. Why does God get the credit? Because again, you're not the owner. You're just a steward. And while the Lord might have given you a mind to generate funds, even the mind and the opportunities and the capacity and the culture within which you live have been given to you by God. So don't take too much credit for your entrepreneurial ingenuity. God's more involved in granting that to you than you probably are aware. So steward your funds for his honor and glory. Okay, here's a third lesson. It's more of a relational lesson. It's more of a relational lesson. We greet, that's our two fish and five loaves, and the Lord gives grace. So when we think about providing for one another and helping one another find contentment, there's there's financial material needs that we have, but there's also relational needs that we have. We're a spiritual family here. You know, this isn't a spectator sport, right? You're part of the church just as much as I am. And in, Christian, in the Christian church, what are we told to do? By the way, is this a suggestion just for some? Is this just for our greeting team? Look what it says, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. How many times have we talked about, heard the word greet so far? three times, especially those of Caesar's household. You know what? Greeting is an act of spiritual kindredship. Greeting is an act of fellowship. Fellowship's an act of worship. We are commanded and called by God to greet one another. That's part of our worship. There's blessing in greeting one another. It's part of your Christian duty. Hear me now, to greet one another. Not to plan your Sunday morning so you drift in just at the last minute and find a seat and then quickly scoot out during that You know that final song that's kind of useless, it's not really part of our worship, it's just there for filler and everyone takes off. 
sermon's done. Why do we need the final song? You know? No, you stay and you worship responsively and then you greet one another. That's part of our Christian worship to greet one another. It's, a, it's an act of acknowledging the other person's humanity and presence and making ourselves available to one another. We bless each other in this way. And you know what? It's free. It doesn't cost you any money to greet other people. So here we have a reference to verbal greetings. So we're greeting. In, in the early church, they would use words like, um, essentially, if we, if we brought them into to modern English, it would be like saying to someone, hey, I'd like to offer you grace. That would be one of their greetings. They would say grace. Or shalom, I'd like to offer you peace. These were, these were greetings. You know, we have our own. There's not like a mandated list, but we might say, hey, how, how are you doing? Or it's great to see you. Or I'm not sure we've met before. Or hey, what can I pray for? We're just, we're just acknowledging one another's humanity. We're, 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 we're in physical presence, in physical contact with one another. So there's a verbal greetings. And then four times, not in this passage, but four times in the New Testament, there's this reference to the holy kiss or what is called the kiss of love. Now, I'm, I'm, I have no problem with contextualizing this because I do know that in the ancient Near East, you know, the that's normal even today. Okay, it's not so normal in our culture. In fact, I'd prefer you not. Okay. Do that, okay? Unless it's my wife. Okay, partly because I'm concerned someone's going to bump my nose and break it. But, <laughs> but um, in, in, in life, we understand that physical touch is a blessing. So we, we shake hands. We, we pat each other on the shoulder. You know, we, we might give someone a hug. If we know them well, we might give them a kiss. So there's verbal greetings and there's physical greetings. Why do we do that? Why not just like, why don't we just go on Zoom, right? Why don't we just make church into more of a spectator sport than it already is in the West? Just make it the, let's get the reverend up preaching a sermon. He'll do the ministry and we'll just watch, kind of like a television show, right? This is why we say Zoom church isn't church because it's not incarnational. There's all kinds of commandments you actually have to set aside to do Zoom church. It's like having a Zoom marriage, Really? Right. How do you do that? How do you procreate through Zoom? How do you really get to know each other through Zoom? Like, like we can communicate through Zoom and we can put sermons out through Zoom. Like there's some benefit to it. I get that. But there's a whole part of life that you miss if you're not in proximity to one another because we're physical beings. And so the Lord calls us to bless each other and recognize each other's humanity. And even if we're not conscious of it, there is something deep inside of us that desires to be acknowledged. Like, I want someone to, to remember my name. Wow, they remembered my name. They greeted me. They said, hey, how are you, Aaron? Wow, they remembered my name. They, they reached, I saw their hand come forward. They actually shook my hand. They, they, they hugged me. 
You know, some people live alone. They never get hugged. They're certainly not being hugged at the grocery store right now. People are like, stay back. So there's a blessing here in that we are called, this is where we bring our two fish and our five loaves. Relationally, we, we greet one another verbally and with the proverbial holy kiss. And then he goes on to say, all the saints greet you. So this is a reference to the church in Rome in all likelihood where Paul was. And when he talks about the members of Caesar's household, there's some disagreement among commentators as to what this means. But he's probably, best guess, referring to Christians that were still working for Caesar, still working for the state. Now, why, why would that have kind of rung in the ears of the Philippian church? Because what was interesting about Philippi is it was largely a retirement town and many former soldiers and officers retired to Philippi. So presumably then, there were many former government employees, if you could call them that, in the early Philippian church. So it's like, well, hey, your colleagues that are still working for Caesar also send you greetings. So this would have sort of rung the bell for the ex-military people there. Well, what, what do we learn from this? We learn that we don't watch church. We are the church. We need to be in relationship with one another. A lot of Christians themselves suffer spiritually because they're isolationists. They're very sporadic in their church attendance. They scoot in and they scoot out. They're not connected to small groups. You know, they're not engaged in robust relationships. And others, you know, they, maybe they're just not contributing to the degree that they should by reaching out to other fellow brothers and sisters. So that's what we bring. What does God bring that we can't bring? Well, ultimately he brings grace, saving grace and sustaining grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. So no matter what we do or don't do, no matter whether we are obedient or disobedient in our relationships with one another, we have grace on our side because our God is abundant and rich in grace. So when you hear this term, beloved, stand firm, what are you supposed to be thinking about? Two things. On one hand, we're loved by God. He's gracious. He's provisionary. He loves us. He has put us on mission. At the other, on the other hand, we have a calling to stand firm, to stay true, to be obedient, to be resolute. And as we then cooperate with God in our sanctification, the church is built up. People are blessed and lives are impacted for eternity. So take these words to heart and find ways to put them into practice even this coming week.